Hello, and welcome to Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for watching this episode and inviting me into your home again this week or listening to me wherever good podcasts are sold. Um, I wanted to plug the podcast this week, the Sensibly Speaking podcast that I posted yesterday, which is sort of... I guess you could say an abuse-by-abuse comparison of David Miscavige as leader of Scientology and Scott Rudin, an Academy and many other award-winning producer who uh, was recently exposed as quite the tyrannical authoritarian uh, in his office, in his own workspace with his employees over the last many decades. And the parallels were too striking for me to ignore or not comment on, so I did a whole podcast about it and uh, made quite a few little Scientology comparisons and and told some stories and things about my Scientology experience that I haven't really talked about elsewhere. So anyway, thought you guys might want to check that out if you haven't seen it yet. I'm quite happy with that. Uh, we also did a live show on Friday that I and I really want to get more of you guys watching our shows on Friday because we really have a lot of fun. I'm joined here by my wife Melissa, and we do critical conversations where you guys can actually call in and talk to us live, and that's actually a lot of fun. And we've had some amazingly fun and very interesting conversations with people. And um, this week, we actually talked about whether news or news sources can become or develop into information cults like QAnon and, you know, these online models that we talk about. And I uh, had some interesting conversation about that. So I encourage you to check that out on the um, playback. You can see that on my channel. So we've got some pretty interesting questions this week. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to them. Dusty Bills, what if a Sea Org member who is OT3 or higher said in an auditing session that they were Xenu in a past life? What would an auditor do and what would you have done? Okay, Dusty, thank you for this question. Interesting. And actually, the response from an auditor to something like this would depend a great deal on the context, but if they were OT3 or higher, then of course that means that they're in with an OT auditor, right? Because um, you'd have to be in an auditing session as an OT with another OT. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but lower level people can't audit OTs for obvious reasons. And by the way, if kind of kind of humorous to me that if you can understand this question, you might have been watching my channel too much. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just kidding because I'm not trying to send anybody away. Anyway, here's how this works is um, in an OT auditing session where you would have an OT auditor, if somebody were to actually say that, then both people in the room would understand why that's not really plausible. Because Xenu isn't dead. According to the OT3 materials that I, that we've seen, Elrond Hubbard claims that Xenu is still very much alive and is being held in a fortress in some prison in some mountain somewhere, uh, not necessarily on Earth. I don't know where he's being kept, with uh, a force field of some kind that's keeping him in place that has a quote-unquote infinite battery. Um, you know, I didn't pull up the, 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 the Hubbard's writings on this. This is just out of my memory before I, before I answered this. But, but this is the case with Xenu. I mean, I'm absolutely positive about this, that the guy is out there and he's still alive. And um, that 
you know, like he sort of, you know, is in this prison sort of spiritually, not just physically, right? It would have to be that way. Because if his body were to die or whatever, he could just take off as a spirit. But, you know, certain electronics, L. Ron Hubbard claims, can actually imprison a Thetan and, and trap him. I, you know, it doesn't make any damn sense considering that a Thetan is not physical in any way. It carries physical baggage around with him, a mind and energy pictures and stuff. But, you know, it's it's just so inconsistent that there's I just I have so many questions for Hubbard on the subject if he were ever to be around to help clarify this stuff. But, you know, we don't have any of that. So the situation you present, though, Dusty, is a situation where both people in the room would know that that can't be. So that would either be a joke <laughs> or if the person were really saying hey, I think I was and somehow didn't understand this, what would happen is the auditor would simply acknowledge the person. Okay, I got it. I hear you. I hear, I hear what you're saying. I uh, got it. You know, thank you. And write it all down. And it goes to the case supervisor. The case supervisor is going to look at that and go, oh, no, that's interesting. Uh, doesn't he understand, right? Doesn't he realize or whatever? And he might actually give an instruction in the next session for the auditor to go over the OT3 materials that actually have that in there with the person. And he's OT3, so he'd be able to see it. And they might go over that stuff, right? Now, I don't, because um, I don't remember exactly precisely where that where that line about, about Xenu being in a prison um, is located. It might be in the class eight class the, sorry, the class eight lectures, which is an auditor training level where they have even more information about the Xenu story than what is on OT3. The things that people read on OT3 about Xenu is just a little bit. There's a whole other couple lectures where Hubbard goes into more detail. One of these lectures is called Assists. It's on the internet. You can look it up. You can Google it. I think it's on YouTube somewhere. And Hubbard talks openly about Xenu in this story, all right, in the in the lecture. So anyway, they might have to go over that material so that the preclear is reminded or the OT is reminded, oh yeah, Xenu, yeah. I mean, I can't be Xenu. Xenu's dead, right? Sort of point that little inconsistency out. Or they might just leave it alone. You know, it, it, the CS might not even care. I mean, I, in the big scheme of things, no one cares. He's certainly not going to run around talking about being Xenu. It would only be something between him and his auditors. And, you know, and I don't know that anybody would even particularly pay a whole lot of attention to it. Now, if the guy was trying to make a big deal about it, Hey, I'm the guy. I'm the one. Like, hey, man, it was me. I'm the one who did all this, you know. Um, there are other actions that he might be instructed to do or that the, that the case supervisor might start putting together, starting with some pretty hardcore sec checking. Because this person would be looked at as slightly nutty, like something's up now, right? Like this guy's making claims that don't make any sense about Scientology mythology. So that's not cool, right? So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take a rather dim view on this. And so the person would probably be security checked. In other words, asked, you know, sharp and pointed interrogatory type questions. Um, to find out what crimes they're committing, concealing, are they on the internet? What are they looking at? What gave them this idea? Where did it come from? You know, did somebody suggest this idea to them? Did they read something about this? You know, lots and lots of ways of hitting this guy 
at different angles, different vectors to get what the hell's going on here that this guy is suddenly spouting off about Xenu and him being Xenu because that doesn't make any damn sense. Right. And they might approach it that way. It's, you know, they tend to use a hammer <laughs> when when presented with options of what to do. The hammer is usually one of the first tools picked up and the, you know, let's let's beat this guy into submission. So that because that's, you know, that's destructive cult 101. Uh, so I think that's my what 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 it's plausible an answer as I think I can give you. I would not have done anything because I've never been an OT auditor and I've never and I'm not been OT but um, pretty much what I just said or laid out there is what I, you know, the kind of things I would have thought to do as the auditor and as the case supervisor. Jonathan Perry. I heard you mention that L. Ron Hubbard said that Jesus was a criminal and a pedophile. I thought that all the Abrahamic and other religions were constructs that you were brainwashed with and therefore didn't exist. So how could Jesus exist and not exist at the same time? Okay, Jonathan, thank you for this. And um, this answer is probably going to surprise you a little bit. This is a really good question, and it gives me the opportunity to talk about some other aspect of the mythology or cosmology of Scientology um, that I just hadn't thought of to talk about before. And this is this is not only the Jesus uh, claims, but the, um, how implants work. Okay, so we have talked in the past, and I have done videos and answers in the past about implants, which is basically Hubbard's, another word for brainwashing or, or thought reform, using intensive pain, drug, hypnosis, control mechanisms, you know, smacking the guy around. Um, you know, Manchurian candidate kind of stuff. That would be called an implant. The Manchurian candidate, the guy who's who's programmed by the enemy to, you know, mentally programmed and hypnotized to go do certain things or act a certain way, that's an implant. And Hubbard claims that Jesus and religion and Catholicism and angels and cherubs and demons and winged beings and, and all these concepts of good and evil and all this stuff come from implants, very powerful implants, not just one or two of them, thousands and thousands of them. And they build on each other over time, right? And also there is the Xenu story, which is all about implanting all kinds of crazy ideas in our noggins, which we have carried forward through the millennia to create our society by these, these implants. We have religion, we have sex, we have, you know, this uh, worship of the body and, and the care of the body and necessity to have bodies. And um, all of these things come from these implants. So if they're just made up, then what's the thing? Then, then how is Jesus a criminal and a pedophile? Well, Hubbard also posited that there was more to this picture than just machines and electronics and, and implants. He also sort of inferred or implied or, or stated in a, few, in a few lectures, and they're so obscure I couldn't even dig them up. This is just, so I'm just pulling this out of my memory here for you. But he talked about how Markab, the Markabian Confederacy or the, the Galactic Confederation or these various government entities out there that run interstellar, you know, planet, uh, gal sort of galaxy-wide uh, societies, um, engaged in conquest. And in conquest and in their efforts to conquer planets and invade them and this sort of thing, 
they would use implants, but they would also use real-world activity and actions to reinforce the implants. So they implant a bunch of people with the idea that religion is important and that there is a savior figure coming. Well, then you want to move in and take over the planet. So you send in a Jesus, a real one. Like you send a guy down there and he starts stirring stuff up. And the planet, the, the, the civilization or the society where you're sending him in has already been primed way earlier. These, these invader timetables take hundreds of years, right? Maybe thousands. I mean, they plan this stuff way ahead. So they're going to invade planet X. So the first thing they do is they start priming planet X by sending in agent provocateurs and sending in people who, you know, are hidden. They're, they, people don't know that they're, you know, they're, they're sending an alien down there, but he looks like and talks like and acts like the, you know, the, the residents of the planet, let's say. And they figure out how to do that and they get in there and they do that. Or the invader force might actually have some spiritual awareness. They might know about thetans or the existence of spiritual beings or something to some degree, not not enough to be able to make OTs and free people or, or do any auditing, but they know that this is kind of how things are. And so they might send a guy down there in some kind of spiritual form to go, you know, take a body from the native planet. Then he is a native, but he's, you know, he's down there to, to, to prime the planet with propaganda. He's going to spread, you know, these, these, these ideas of that a savior is coming one day and he starts a religion gets this religious idea going. He's not necessarily the religious figurehead. He's a prophet, let's say. He dies off. The thing carries on, you know, because they know how to plant these seeds and get this kind of thing going because they've done it hundreds of times, thousands of times. And so they get these things brewing, and then they send a Christ guy down there. And everybody goes gaga, right? And he's actually a representative from, you know, from Markab or the invader forces or whatever. So he's just forwarding their agenda by reinforcing the religious implants and the religious ideas. And then they, you know, and they just keep hitting them with this stuff between lives. When they die, they implant them with this and send them back down. Not Jesus, but the planetary population, right? They're, this is all about population control, via how L. Ron Hubbard posits it would occur in the distant past, right? And now, because he says that Earth is also controlled this way. He says there's all kinds of forces, you know, hitting Earth and have been hitting Earth for, you know, over the years. So, um, so we've had different influences on us. So that is how I understand, and, 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 and please, you know, it's vague illusions. I am elaborating on some of this, okay? Um, uh, you know, not not too much because a lot of what I'm saying is pretty much what Hubbard was describing. But I'm 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 filling in some gaps and some details. Hubbard was very vague about this stuff. It was drop a hint here, drop a hint there, not really fully explaining all of this in any one place, which is why I'm kind of trying my best to put things together that I remember about this and and answer your questions. So. I think that's a I think that's a pretty accurate rendition of how that would work, and how you have uh, Schrodinger's Jesus, so to speak. <laughs> Cody Swan, you refer to yourself as the critical thinker at large, and to my satisfaction, after watching many of your videos, you are that. 
Would you have described yourself as a critical thinker while you were an active Scientologist? If so, why? If not, why not? Thanks, Cody. It's a great question. What it brings to mind for me is um, is my own debunking of my conspiracy mindset that Scientology had sort of instilled in me. Um, and I did that kind of on my own, and I did that while I was still in Scientology. But I want to speak more broadly here because it's not just any one thing that's going to prove, you know, that I was a critical thinker or that I could be a critical thinker. The, the fact of the matter is we can all be critical thinkers in certain areas and then totally miss the boat in other areas. And and my theory on this, and this is really just my theory, I, I, I don't have any, any study that I can fall back on. I haven't proved this to be true, but I believe it to be true, and I say it often, is that emotional commitment of the kind that we see in destructive cults, right? A commitment to a cause, commitment to a belief, to a mindset, to a worldview, to a way of looking at things, right? Is a way of, of closeting off or closing off your ability to critically think on that subject or area because you already know what the truth is. So you don't have to think about it anymore. That's 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 kind of aligned with my definition of faith, which is you know those those uh, ideas, the truths that you don't have to think about anymore. They just they exist. They are that. That's how it is. I have faith, right? You don't have to think about it anymore. Um, now you can think about it more. Obviously, Christian apologists think about it more, right? But generally speaking, it serves to make it so you don't have to think about it anymore. You've settled it. This the, the answers are settled. The questions were asked. These are the answers. I'm not looking anymore. I'm happy with this. This satisfies me. I'm done looking. Now, as you get more and more extreme about these ideas, your ability to critically think about and be objective about these ideas is less and less because you're glomming on and investing more and more of yourself into these ideas. And what that means in a very real sense is you are making these outside external ideas, you're internalizing them and you are making them part of your own identity. And when you identify with ideas and beliefs, right, they are part of who you are. And at that point, you are not thinking critically about them anymore. You have fully accepted them. That's, that's kind of my basic theory of how that works. I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. And I've observed this over and over and over again. And I say that it is only on that subject area or that matter that, that you are invested in so heavily that you won't be able to critically think. You can still critically think about anything else because you're not as heavily invested in those other things as you are in that, that matter that you can't. So for me, that was me with Scientology. I couldn't think critically about Scientology. Not, not really. Not until a number of events happened that sort of jarred me awake from some of the nonsense and the, and the extreme you know, emotional commitment that I had made. So, um, so that's what allowed me to start thinking critically about it. But the whole time I was in the church, I was not thinking critically about Scientology. And I did not particularly grow up. Um, I read a lot. 
I was exposed to a lot of different ideas and a lot of different views of things. And I think that informed my ability to look at things from different angles and be willing to do so. I think reading and, and travel and experience does that to a person. So, um, so I was a voracious reader as a kid. And I think that was, if I had any kind of ability to wonder about or think through or, or sort of analyze things, it was because of that education and knowledge. But Scientology was presented to me my whole life as something that is not to be questioned. It's just true. This is how it is. And, you know, there you go. So that was how I kind of treated it. Um, the first, so, so what I mentioned at the beginning of this answer was the conspiracy theory stuff, because this for me was the first point where I think I practiced or used critical thinking in a direction toward Scientology. And it was sort of a via of the conspiracy theory. Scientology's got very deep seated conspiracy theories and Hubbard was laid them out. I've talked about them. I made videos about them. They're very deep, deep and very complicated, and they align very much with 9-11 truther, anti-government, even um, elements of, I mean, you go all the way down and, you know, you get, you get pretty far into the QAnon world, deep state stuff. I mean, Scientology can easily align with that material, easily. Hubbard's ramblings on stuff, and especially the anti-government stuff he talked about, it's it's hand in glove with deep state QAnon, 9-11 truther, can't, can't trust the governments, uh, you know, the, the, the spy network, Big Brother's watching you, all that kind of doom and gloom kind of conspiracy stuff. Hubbard was all about that. And, and I was too. Because of that, right? Because of Hubbard. So when I went out and started doing recruitment post-RPF... Well, I was off the RPF, and I was already a little disaffected at this point, right, as you know from my story with us, the Sea Org, but I was still keen to help out, and I still want, and I still was a firm, firm believer in Scientology. So I'm out recruiting people, but then I'm so curious and so voracious about the, you know, wanting to know more about this conspiracy and who are the players and what's this all about, and I'm digging in and digging in, and then what do I run across? Two things. I ran across um, the um, ar an article that what Popular Mechanics. I ran across the Popular Mechanics takedown debunk of the 9/11 truther mythology and the the fact that it was an inside job that 9/11 had to be an inside job, and that it had to be um, uh, explosives planted up and down the twin towers that were the cause of the buildings coming down. That had to be how it was. Well, Popular Mechanics did a whole article debunking all of that. And I saw a link to that. I was looking up conspiracy theory stuff. I had internet access enough to be able to do that. This was when I was out doing recruitment and doing projects. I wasn't on the base. And, um, and I saw this debunking thing and I went, I went, huh, there's debunking material on this. Well, that's all probably just state-sponsored nonsense, you know, and, and counter-intel and, you know, this kind of this stuff, right? So I ignored it for a little while, but then I saw a picture. I saw some photo of, I think it was Building 11 or something. It was one of the, it was one of the smaller buildings that had come down, and there was this whole conspiracy theory about it, 
And basically what I saw was a picture from another angle to debunk the conspiracy side. The conspiracy theorists were only looking at this building from one angle. And if you look at it from another angle and you start putting the pieces together, you see that firemen didn't pull it down and that's not what happened. Um, and that's what I learned looking at this picture and seeing the narrative. I went, wait a second. Hold on. That got through. And I was like, wait a minute. And then I went, well, hold on. Okay, there's this popular mechanics thing. And then I went and looked it up and I read it and I was like, oh, oh. And the first thing that I realized was you could create an entire narrative with a picture. And you could debunk that entire narrative with a picture of the same thing from another angle. Like, oh, right, duh. If you only look at it from one side, you're only going to see one thing. You're going to see it one way. But if you look at it another way, right, you get a three-dimensional view of the thing, right? This was the, the, the very, very root beginnings of my idea of two-dimensional versus three-dimensional thinking about things. And, and conspiracy theorists are, are, are very two-dimensional thinkers in many ways. So, um, so anyway, it was kind of, kind of interesting, but that was, that I think was the beginning of my active critical thinking and pushback against Scientology narratives, not organizational bullshit and nonsense, not David Miscavige's crap, but the actual L. Ron Hubbard inspired stuff. And that was important because that was, uh, that was a real important crack in the shell. So anyway, long story short, you know, I've been telling this in a real long version, but it's a great question. And um, so thank you for asking it, uh, because it really was the, the beginning of, of, of where I feel in my life, I actually really started using something called critical thinking. And I didn't even know what to call it. I didn't think about it that way. It wasn't, I wouldn't have identified it as that. I just was like, wait a second, this is weird. I guess I would have called it debunking or something, but but that was the first time that that was a big deal. And that was when I was still in. And, um, and that's, that's a story for you. Matus Biali. Since Scientology's confidential materials are so readily available online, I wonder if a PC can just look up cognitions for each level, say them almost exactly line for line during an auditing session, and progress up the bridge incredibly quickly. I know that someone who has already went down the rabbit hole is unlikely to continue doing Scientology, but let's say they use that knowledge to try to cheat, quote-unquote, their way into clear or even OT levels. Would that be possible? Yes, that is entirely possible and not even very hard to do. But, of course, the question you have to ask yourself is why the hell would anyone want to do that? Scientologists are in it to win it. They really believe that this stuff is going to help them, and they are not there to fake it until they make it. That's not the attitude. The, it is when it comes to keeping the smiles on, but when it comes to actually getting in session and getting up the bridge, you want to shuck up as much power and ability and, and potential you know, out of yourself as you can. You're in this to get better. And that's actually the tragedy of Scientology is these people are earnest. They are sincere. They are true believers. And they are being pillaged, just absolutely financially raped by Scientology because it's not delivering any of the goods that it's promising. So 
you could, in frustration or upset or status happiness, you could go to the internet, look up things, and say them in session and get away with it and figure it out and do it. You could game the Scientology system. But there's no big prize at the end waiting for you. It's just more money. Remember, whether you're faking it or not, you're still going to have to pay for it. And they're going to charge you as much as they can, and they're going to demand as much money out of you in the process as they can get out of you. And the higher you go up the bridge, the more ruthless they become. I mean, it's bad at the higher levels, you know, for the OTs as far as the, the, the voracious vulture regging and all that. It's bad on the lower level guys too, but I'm just saying over time, it just gets worse and worse and worse because the more you give, the more you're expected to give. The more high you go, the more aware and powerful and amazing you're supposed to be and the more you're supposed to give. So, you know, they do expect a lot more out of you at those upper levels. So sure, fake it, you know, till you make it. But why would you want to? You know, I, I would want to do exactly the opposite. So I wanted to answer your question, but I also want to just kind of throw that back out at you. So there you go. Okay, let's do some flash answers. Nick C., on a recent live Q&A, you were wearing an Invader Zim t-shirt. I'm curious, what has been your experience with that show? Thanks for asking, Nick. Very little. I've watched two episodes, but I got the shirt and I was looking into it because my son Josh is a big Invader Zim fan. And when I went and visited him in Australia, he showed it to me, showed me the show, and we watched a few episodes and I just got inspired and I bought the shirt. And uh, that's my connection. Steve Wood. I'm currently listening to your podcast with Leah and Mike, where you're discussing the RPF. Based on what you're saying, it would appear that Sea Org members who are sent there are being given an opportunity to right whatever wrongs they have done, and this is a way of redeeming oneself. Therefore, the question is, do all of the people on the RPF feel that this is a good thing for them, and they are very fortunate to be given this opportunity, or do they see it the way the outside world sees it, as a prison sentence? By far, the majority of people on the RPF see it as a chance to redeem themselves. Remember, these are true believers. Always remember that. So they are in it to win it, and they are going to go through anything, hell or high water, in order to accomplish their goal of making it to full OT. It is the biggest thing they've got in their life, and they think it's the most important thing that's ever happened to them. So they will do anything, endure anything, in order to accomplish that goal, and of course, there's also the purpose of saving the planet and all of that that goes along with it. And being in that group where everybody's on the same page, you know, you generate some group belief and think and power with that. Um, so, yes, there are RPFers who realize, uh, you know, wow, I'm in a hellhole here. Definitely. Nobody's enjoying it. Not one person on the RPF is thinking they are having a good time. Uh, no one on the RPF really wants to be there but they might feel that it's necessary that they be there and it's something that they have to get through. That's how they look at it. Travis, who would win in a cage fight between Xenu and Darth Vader? Oh, this is easy, man. It's Darth Vader 100% because he's got the force. See, Xenu didn't really have powers. Darth Vader does. <laughs> he's in tune with, his, with the big you know, energy force. So, uh, so Darth Vader, hands down. 
All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me babble on here. I really appreciate your viewership. And I hope that this uh, channel and my in, and my videos continue to be informative and educational and entertaining for you. Thanks for coming around. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.